You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Jeremy Lassen is the publisher of Nightshade Books. Thank you for speaking with me, Jeremy. My pleasure. Let's uh, take a look at 2010, what's coming both in your catalog and maybe just some of your thoughts about the general landscape. Uh, looks to me like we got a lot of Glenn Cook coming out. Well, we've been working on, uh, um, Nightshade's been working on a, uh, a backlist catalog for Glenn Cook for a while now, and it just seemed like um, we've got a bunch of series titles coming out. Uh, Starfishers is mm-hmm. a big science fiction um, space opera epic. And so we've got all three volumes of that coming uh, once a quarter this year. So that's the, actually the first volume just shipped. So we've just got Starfishers Volume 1, Shadowliners, just uh, just hit the shelves. So uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, space opera. I mean, this is, this is a, a, an older title, but how do you think it uh, uh, compares to some of the new space opera today or, and, or, and or it has influenced it? I think it's been very influential. It's... It, it was kind of Glenn doing new space opera before there was a new space opera. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He had published one of his earlier, uh, another one of his science fiction novels, um, The Dragon Never Sleeps, oddly enough, a science fiction novel. But um, that one had very much a new space opera vibe, and another one we did, Passage at Arms, had kind of a military SF vibe. Um, but Passage at Arms is set in the same universe as Starfishers, mm-hmm. um, except it takes place like, you know, a thousand years earlier, 500 years earlier, or something like that, and different cast of characters. So, but Starfishers is kind of like one of those um, cla- galactic clashes of civilizations, you know, two um, to opposing forces. And um, Glenn Cook does this really amazing kind of, what he does in fantasy fiction, he continues to do in the science fiction here of... Um, shuttling back and forth in time and, you know, and space, like, you know, and a huge cast of characters. And, I don't know, he just got a, a, a lot of balls in the air, you know, a la Peter Hamilton mm-hmm. or uh, Alistair Reynolds or something like that. And um, But he was doing this stuff back in the, the mid to late 80s. Um, and I think it's just amazing that um, Glenn Cook, the guy who's known for mainly for his fantasy, um, has this just truly remarkable science fiction work out there, space opera work out there that, uh, I think it's a bit more influential than, than most people give him credit for. Uh, and speaking of space opera, although I don't believe this collection is is oriented towards that, Walter John Williams has The Green Leopard Plague and other stories coming out. I absolutely loved his recent space opera, the kind of uh, P.G. Woodhouse meets Star Wars things he was doing. Uh, so talk about the, the Green Leopard Plague, which I think is uh, a, an award-winning story, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, that was those... Uh, Hugo award-winning story, I believe, and um, that's the title story we went with. Um, he actually had three stories um, set in that same same universe. Um, it's kind of a near-future um, cyberpunk 2.0 kind of setting, um, and it kind of deals with, uh, well, that particular story kind of deals with uh, um, memory and being able to reincarnate yourself or, or not reincarnate yourself, but resleeve yourself in different bodies, and um, and the kind of tragedies associated with kind of interpersonal relationships um, when when that type of stuff makes itself available, um, either in the black market or directly. 
but um, but he's this collection is one that I've been looking forward to doing for a long time because it's. I think Walter's one of those hugely influential writers that most people don't. A lot of a lot of people don't actually acknowledge, but he's you know he's always there year after year. With um, you know, he had that big space opera that you were talking about, mm-hmm. um, the Threat Empire. Um, we did a novel with him called Implied Spaces. He's he's very diverse in the type of the stuff that he tackles. He just did a novel with Orbit called um, uh, the the True. Uh, this is not a game. This is not a game. A, a fine novel about the gaming industry. I thought. I really yeah, enjoyed yeah, that. and those and those real games, you know, those kind of online, fine, you know, and slash in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, he, he's just amazing and always like really like um, fresh. You know, he. It's he's best just, to remember too that he and he was one of the original cyberpunks, and he's. I think he's survived that the pot, potential stigmata quite well. Yeah, well, he he survived that much. To, he avoided that stigmata by writing stuff that completely wasn't cyberpunk. Mm. Uh, you know, he did two novels that were very much in that vein, and this is both his his curse and but also why I think he's a brilliant writer. Is he he never sticks to one one category. Hardwired and Voice of the Whirlwind were very much you know cyberpunk novels, but then he did stuff like Days of Atonement. Which was a weird time travel thing, and he did um, uh, Angel Station in the novel about the the earthquake. Yeah, and the rift. The rift, yeah. Um, and so he's 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 been all over the map, and his short fiction definitely reflects that. And so that's why Green Leopard Plague, I think, is like you know one of the the, the collection is going to be one of those kind of great distillations of um, you know just a, an incredible range. Um, actually, Jonathan Strawn um, worked with Walter to put together um, that contents because uh, Walter's had two or three collections um, throughout his career so far, um, and this is the majority of the stuff that's in this collection is um, stuff from the last ten years that's been uncollected. So it's it's all fresh new fiction um, that's been appearing um, different places, but it's once again shows Walter still is still at the top of his game. Uh, speaking of people who are always at the top of their game, Fritz Leiber. Yeah. Best of Fritz Leiber. Wow. That's a that's a pretty big deal because, I mean, Fritz Leiber is important <clears throat> in so many ways. He's really, you know, the origin point of what we now call paranormal romance. He's, in many ways, he's also one of the most influential sword and sorcery writers, and he's a fantastic science fiction writer. Yeah. the, the We're doing a selected stories volume, and... It just seemed like, for somebody who was that influential, most of his work is out of print at this point, and it seemed like it was the right time to be doing Fritz Library. He was definitely really influential on me, and um, and actually, this was a project that um, that was sprung upon me by uh, by uh, Jonathan Strawn and uh, Charles Brown last year. Um, they were like, "You really need to do this, Jeremy," and I thought to myself, "Yeah, but." isn't there somebody else who should be doing it? Because this seems like kind of a tough sell. You know, it's the 21st century. You know, Fritz hasn't been around for a while, but they really, you know, they really sold it to me. Um, They put together a great package, and um, I'm really excited about it because I think, I mean, Fritz is absolutely one of those, one of those very influential writers to me, but I wanted to make sure that this collection isn't purely a nostalgia collection. Um, I wanted this collection to showcase why Fritz Leiber is still incredibly relevant and still, you know, in, influential to writers who are just, 
you know, readers who are just coming up today. And I think this volume sh- showcases that really well. What they at NPR call Why This Matters. Exactly. Now, another collection I see that looks really good to me, um, Laird Barron, boy, that first collection of his knocked my socks off. He is really, really good. And so we have a new collection called Occultation. Yeah, Occultation. That's um, that's the title story. And um, I, I, I agree with you. Um, Laird is one of those completely unique voices. Um, some people want to kind of pigeonhole him as um, Lovecraftian, um, but you can't really do that any more than you could say say that about uh, Thomas Ligotti. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's certainly a, a, a weird fiction quality to his work, but um, his settings and his um, characters are, you know, well, his characters are obviously way more developed than anything that Lovecraft ever did, um, frankly. But, um, but yeah, Laird's just the full package, mm-hmm. and he absolutely, you know, is in tune with the traditions of 20th century horror fiction, but he's um, fresh and interesting and truly creepy. Yeah, um, he, his stuff, what I like about his stuff, like you say, he's, he has all the feel <clears throat> of the the way you feel when you encounter Lovecraft and, and you know, the classic writers of the 20th century, Robert Block, uh, uh, Ramsey Campbell, but he really brings that into the 21st century, and it does seem really fresh and relevant to right now. I mean, it does, it's not throwback horror. It's it's throw-forward horror, as far as that's concerned. Yeah, exactly. And this collection's really cool. We've got uh, two original stories in it, um, as well as uh, short fiction that he's been writing um, since we did uh, the Imago sequence. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think it's really cool right now because we brought the Imago sequence out in trade paperback last year, um, and then Occultation is coming out this spring. And um, I just hope, you know, Laird continues to get that kind of reputation for, you know, where it's at for horror fiction, because he certainly has that in my mind. Now, another title I think that's uh, also somebody who's, I think, going to someday, I hope, really hit the hit the bestseller list is, is uh, Liz Williams, The Iron Con. Uh, this, her Inspector Chen novels are, I think, really a great confection and very, very imaginative. Yeah, they're, they're a series that we absolutely fell in love with, and she's been just hitting those high notes uh, with every book. And I think... Uh, the Iron Con and this one um, continue to kind of shake up your expectations. I mean, we're, um, I guess, four volumes, five volumes now into the series. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you get that far into a series, things might be a little bit flat or reader expectations might be like, okay, well, I know I know what Inspector Chen and Jaju, the his demon um, counterpart, um, I know what they're going to do or I know what their relationships are. And she continues to kind of mix things up, expand the pantheon of what's going on in her near future Southeast Asian um, setting. And I'm just always impressed by um, what Liz brings to the table in her books because she's she's spot on. um, It's a setting that is uh, in itself really super compelling. And then, you know, it's it's really imaginative, seems highly relevant now as we hear that China is the biggest consumer of automobiles it's passed in the united states so i mean she's really got her finger on that kind of uh uh far eastern pulse but it's also the characters and the supernatural aspect are you know match the science fiction vision so that's an unusual combination yeah that was definitely one of those things that really made it stand out is the 
you know, the non-Western uh, Western European setting and the um, the mix of science fiction and fantastic and different cultures, um, and and still manage to have it be this character-driven, you know, really compelling character-driven thing rather than just, hey, look how exotic this is, or mm-hmm. look at how impenetrable and strange this is. It's it's completely accessible and yet very different from any other, you know, urban fantasy that's out there. Now, speaking of urban fantasy, I have to ask about uh, what's up with uh, Sympathy for the Devil. We haven't heard from Tim Pratt for a while. This is an anthology that he edited, I guess. Yeah, yeah. This is a uh, this is an anthology idea that he brought to me uh, middle of last year. Um, I'm, frankly, I hope this is his book that um, um, helps reinvigorate him. He um, it, his editor got laid off from Bantam um, last year, and he was kind of in the doldrums and kind of unhappy, and I was chatting with him. And I was like, well, you know, it's doing really well for Nightshade. These are big, fat anthologies, man. Like, pitch me an idea. Well, you know, give me, you know, we did The Living Dead, we did Wastelands, we got Sherlock Holmes coming. Like, pitch me an idea. And I was just kind of casually hanging out with him um, here in San Francisco when I said that, and... Um, I guess it was like maybe a month later, two months later, he came to me and was like, all right, Sympathy for the Devil, Stories of Lucifer the Morning Star. And I was just like, it just instantly hit me. I was just like, that's brilliant, man. That's genius. Um, and then he delivered on the concept. He's He's got a full spread of stories from, you know, classic stuff, um, you know, early 20th century stuff, just kind of like, you know, that's been hugely influential. Um, up through all the weird fiction, and you know, there's Robert Bloch story in there, the Hellbound Train, which you know was obviously one of the influential ones. So there's there's this broad range of like deals with the devil, or you know, and then more traditional stuff. I don't know. I, I think it's just one of those really compelling archetypes, and that's really what these big fat anthologies are for us. Is you know, just show you how diverse those you know the 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 science fiction fantasy um, community, um, what they can do when when they sink their teeth into you know something that's that meaty. It's rude. Sorry, I just threw a lot of mixed metaphors at you right there. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's okay. <laughs> but you, but you know what I mean. Uh-huh. Like it's it's one of those core archetypes, and this collection is has um, you know people as diverse as you know China Mieville. Robert Block to everything in between, and so I think that's like really, really cool um, to have that one coming. Now, um, I'm also excited about uh, a new novel by uh, Greg Egan, uh, Zendegi. I mean, I remember when Permutation City came out, and I think my co- I bought the hardcover copy from Zsing ten zillion years ago. I think it's <laughs> worth you know probably more than my car at this point. So uh, you're, da- you're dating both of us, yeah, <laughs> ten zillion years ago. <laughs> no, um, Zendegi is is we did we did uh, Incandescence with Greg Egan last year, mm-hmm. and that was kind of like a far future alien civilization point of view and this is this novels and diggy is almost the complete opposite of that it's it's very much five minutes in the future mm-hmm. it's set in um a future uh iran and it has a expatriate australian journalist um as your point of view character and it kind of follows um technological developments in a nascent um computer gaming industry hmm. um so there's a, a massive mmorg um 
role-playing game company that services the, you know, um, the, the Middle Eastern world is their specialty. Um, and Zendegi is the name of the game, and it's based on this classic Persian legend um, or story cycle. And um, so the main protagonist, he's an Australian expatriate, he's, he has a Persian wife, the, the theocratic regime had been overthrown, and he was involved in covering that, and his wife was involved in the kind of uprising. And so it's literally, it was like torn from today's headlines. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it was funny because as he, you know, just after he turned it in, there was literally the, you know, the riots and the shooting and the post-election stuff um, that happened last summer. Um, and so, you know, Greg went back and rewrote and incorporated some of it, and, you know. But he was like, he was very clear with me. He was like, look, I can't completely future-proof this. Like, the stuff happening on the ground it, right now in Iran is, you know, stuff that I was, you know, writing about in the, you know, as a future possibility. You know, he kind of imagines that, like, the the current Iranian regime just cannot keep the genie in the bottle. They can't keep, you know they're not going to be able to keep their hands on the reins of power mm. indefinitely. And it's going to flip, and it's going to flip pretty quickly sometime in the near future where a more responsive, you know, and democratic regime is, you know, is going to take over. But it's still going to be a culture that's firmly uh, a Muslim culture, and that's that's at the core um, dilemma that this character faces. He's married a, a Muslim, you know, Iranian wife. They have children, and... Um, I don't want to give too much away, but it, it actually deals with the gaming industry and the ideas of uploading consciousness or or copying one's consciousness and, you know, having online avatars that are you. And so it's it's literally like five minutes in the future and um, a really compelling uh, setting, you know, something that's not your tradition, traditional Western European, you know, slash American-based science fiction, I find you know, stuff like that really refreshing and interesting. Mm. Now, I, I'm wondering if you'd like to talk just a moment about, you know, trends we see in the, the wider uh, uh, book world coming out. I mean, it seems that um, we're still seeing, you know, hard, the hardcover novels are still <laughs> being printed. Paper has not refused ink yet. Um could you talk about uh, where you see, you know, the science fiction and genre fiction industry going in general? I mean, do you, you and uh, between you and Subterranean Press, I, I, you know, it seems like there's a lot of uh, the stuff that I might have expected once that would come out from Bantam or Random House or you know or Harper Collins or something uh, is being handled by by what were in the, you know, in independent publishers. Yeah, in the in the before time called the small press. Now we're now we're independent. <laughs> Pretty soon you'll be, you know, uh, the ascendant publishers. Well, I mean, I really think that publishing, you know, is going through um, a sea change right now, mm-hmm. and the publishing industry is facing a really big shakeup, much the way that they did back at the uh, beginning of the 20th century. And the old guard, big publishing houses gave way to younger, more nimble publishing houses, you know, like Random House or Knopf or, mm-hmm. you know, there, there was a big change back in the 20s and 30s. And, you know, and that change involved it around um, advances in distribution and advertising and, you know, formats like mass market paperbacks. These were all things that completely redefined publishing in the 20th century and were were 
critical in getting, you know, a new guard of publishers to kind of overthrow <laughs> the elder gods, as it were. Mm-hmm. And I think I think a similar thing is happening. I think the giant bloated multimedia companies of, you know, of the 70s and 80s and 90s where, you know, you had a company that owned movie studios and record companies and publishing companies, um, book publishing companies, I think those days are long gone. I mean, we already saw Time Warner sell off its book division um, because it was underperforming compared to, you know, movies and, you know, music. But they're doing quite well now. I mean, they have a great, that's, I think, Hachette, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and Hachette um, they're, is doing they're some rock stuff. Yeah, Grand Central is their the branding for the U.S. imprint. And, um, no, they're doing great stuff, and they're doing just fine. It's just one of those things where the, when the larger corporate masters look at the different units and they say, well, this music division is totally outperforming this book division, and they have the same amount of overhead, and there's a greater return on investment with the music company, so you're dragging our stock price down, so go away. Um, and I think... And so they, so Warner sold that division to a books only or a, a written word only publishing company, um, Hachette, which mm-hmm. is a French-owned company, big conglomerate. So I don't think you know when you're dealing with imprints of this size, you're not going to get away with the big, you know, dozens and dozens of imprints. But I think you're going to get away from that kind of false sense of synergy where you own a movie studio and the movie studio buys you know, books from in-house, and there's going to be some kind of, you know, some greater than the, you know, individual parts kind of effect going on. I think those days are over just because the expectations are not realistic. Um, mm-hmm. And when you see stuff like that happening, you're seeing these huge shakeups and consolidations. Um, Random House finally went through. Um, I remember when I was first working in a bookstore back in the late 80s, um, when Random House was bought by Bertelsmann. And it was this huge shakeup in the industry, and everybody was, you know, very, very paranoid. And, you know, to, to Bertelsmann's credit, they waited some 15-odd years before they finally, you know, consolidated and, you know, got rid of all the redundancy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, as, as the economy got tighter and tighter last year, in the last couple of years, um, last year, Random House just totally slashed and consolidated their imprints, and then they went from like I think six separate divisions to three, or, or five to three, or something like that. And they got rid of, you know, the redundant marketing departments and editorial staffs and stuff like that. And it was a massacre. Mm. And um, a lot of good talent that, got out on the street too. Yeah, and what that does though is give opportunities to, you know smaller, more nimble companies like mine. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of other companies out there that are doing similar things. And as times get tighter, that's when, you know, really evolutionary change becomes revolutionary change. Mm. And, you know, that's kind of the Great Depression of the 20th century was really the nail in the coffin of those 19th century publishers that were still hanging around. And that's really what cemented the, you know, the Alfred Knopf's and the Random Houses and the, the Pockets and the, all, the, all the companies that kind of defined publishing of the last 30 years. You know, they got cemented in their market share during the Great Depression. And, you know, hopefully things aren't quite as bad as that right now, but I do see um, significant changes. And e-books are a big part of that, that, mm-hmm. that switch in 
distribution models, um, you know, ultimately I see mass market paperbacks being less and less relevant. Um, and because Replaced by books on your iPhone. Yeah, buy them on your iPhone, or, you know, if you're going to have paper copies, um, you know, you're going to end up with uh, trade paperbacks or hardcovers mm -hmm. because, you know, those are the ones, those are the non-disposable books. You know, mass market paperbacks originally, you know, their conceit was they're disposable. They're, they're on the shelf um, next to magazine racks, mm -hmm. and one of the core inefficiencies of them is in America, at least, they're still strippable. Mm. You know, a, a large majority of mass market paperbacks that are sold um, have their covers torn off like magazines, and just the covers are returned. And that's hugely inefficient, particularly when, you know, frankly, there's not that much, you know, newsstand space given over to the mass market paperbacks. Mm. So, you know, the distribution um, system in the, for books has been broken a long time. The days it, of this... Drugstore spin rack are, alas, sadly gone. Yeah, the, the opportunity to get books in front of readers' noses when they're not in a bookstore has led directly, I think, to the decline of um, reading, reading of fiction. Well, pretty soon they'll just have uh, kiosks in the drugstore where you can just uh, pop in your iPhone and pick up the latest uh, Danielle Steele novel. Or, you know, there's going to be, you know, pop-up ads on that, you know, that news blog that you read that correlate, you know, Google's going to correlate and, you know, properly place my ad about my cyberpunk novel alongside that story about, you know, China becoming the great biggest consumer of, you know, automobiles. There's lots of opportunity for getting books in front of readers' faces when, you know, the physical object is no longer, um, you know, the, the cornerstone of that act, and um, but it's going to be completely redefining, you know, how you do it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I don't have all the answers. I'm just hoping that I can, you know, stick around long enough to to learn some of them and um, and get those books out there. And start your own uh, zombies only label with the Loving Dead by Aunt Amelia Beamer. Zombies of Lake Woebegotten by Harrison Gilor and Living Dead 2, John Joseph Adams. I would see here, I'm guessing there's probably a few Living Dead in that Mark Teppo novel coming out. Um, well, I, you know, I mean... <laughs> I'm, <laughs> hey, they're, they're, they're resurrected for a reason. <laughs> <They're> yeah. <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble with my business partner. He keeps yelling at me. He's like, you know, zombie bubble's going to pop, Jeremy. And when it does, you're going to be stuck with all these zombie books. And I'm going to hit you. And I'm just like, no, come on, man. We'll be safe for this year. So, <laughs> so I, you know, I had a lot of projects that were kind of percolating and developing. And, you know, part of me is like, well, i got to strike while the iron's hot. Um, hey, I don't blame you. And, um, it, it, well, and The Living Dead 2 by John Joseph Adams is, um, it's a mixed reprint and original anthology. So he's commissioned a lot of new fiction. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's a, a really great book because it's going to be showing the, the kind of like the Living Dead. The first one was a, a kind of retrospective. This is what's you know come out in the last 25 years. This is you know where zombies have been, what they've become, and Living Dead Two is you know they're still fresh, they're still interesting, um, and here's some of the best people doing them. And the Loving Dead was this. <laughs> this brilliant novel that was brought to my attention from by by Amelia. She wrote it, and she was kind of teasing me as she was writing it. She'd like give me snippets. She's like, "Hey, you know, I'm writing this zombie novel." I'm like, "Ooh, zombies!" And she's like, "Hey, I'm writing this zombie novel, and it's set in the Bay Area, and it's called The Loving Dead." And I'm like, "Ooh, double bonus!" And then she's like, 
you know, I've got Zeppelins. And I'm just like, zombies and Zeppelins? Oh, my gosh. So, so um, she was kind of trickling it out and teasing me, and um, she submitted it to me, and it blew my socks off, and I just had to publish it. It was completely my porn. Bay Area, zombies, Zeppelins, I mean, you know, it's pretty hot. So I'm really excited about that one. I was just actually just talking with Amelia last night about it. Um, and, yeah, that's coming out in, in July. And I think it should be, you know, the new the new something. It's 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 kind of got a Chuck Palahniuk meets Christopher Moore vibe. It's not a comedy per se, but it's very funny. Um, but it has kind of a really dark literary edge to it. I don't know. I'm I'm really excited. I can't wait to see what people think of it. I'm sure we'll find out. I've been speaking with Jeremy Lassen. He's the publisher of Nightshade Books. Thank you for joining me, Jeremy. My pleasure. Thanks, Rick. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony. <laughs>